Our scripture passage comes from Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1 all the way through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. What other splendor outshines the sun? Only you. Only you in your holiness and in your beauty and your transcendence, but also in your grace and in your mercy and in your patience and in your nearness. Thank you. So many things to be thankful for. And Father, we want to thank you for this week, yet another, another new life. We pray, thank you and praise you for the birth, healthy birth and delivery of Elena Galliard. And we pray that she would continue to do well, that Amanda would continue to recover well, and that you would give them special grace during this time of joy, but also exhaustion, that they would just be thankful to you, the giver of life. And we pray that they would disciple her well, beginning now to pray for her and to read your word over her and to her, and that you would save her and that she would grow up to be a mighty warrior for the kingdom of Christ, a faithful disciple who lives for you and your glory. And God, this morning, I want to pray for parents whose children are not walking with you. God, as, as parents, one of our main, if not the main desire is to see our children walking in truth and following you. And so I pray for those parents who are not experiencing that right now, that you would be with them, that you would strengthen their hope, that they would trust in you, that they would not doubt your goodness, that they would continue to have renewed energy to pray for their children and to tell the truth to their children, give them boldness, but wrapped in a humility. And I pray for those children. I pray that they would know that their parents have their absolute best in mind and that their speaking and their praying and their way of life is actually love. It's actually for their good. It's because they care for them so deeply. And God, we pray that you would bring them back that you would grant repentance. Those children or adult children that aren't living for you, who know the truth, who know the gospel because they've been raised in it, would you grant repentance and draw them back to yourselves? Whatever means you've got to use, bring them to the end of themselves so that they might look up to you. Thankful for your faithfulness. 
grateful that you are a God who reveals yourself. Thank you for graciously showing yourself to us through your word. Thank you for your promise that your word will not return empty. It will bring forth growth. It will accomplish that which you purpose. And God, as we look to it, help us not to lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you. May your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. The grass withers and the flower falls, but your word stands forever. We pray this through Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you want to be happy? Of course you do. Everyone does. Augustine, back in the 300s, said, Every man whatsoever his condition desires to be happy. As the French philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal put it, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it, it's the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Even those think it would be happier to be non-existent than to go on living how they are. All people seek happiness. God's designed us that way. And today, Americans are as desperate for happiness as they've ever been, which is sort of counterintuitive because today we have more than any other generation ever has. More stuff, more toys, more technological and medical advances than any generation ever. And happiness is sought after. It's become its own industry. Now there are full-time, many full-time happiness gurus. It's its own industry. Just search for happiness on Amazon and see how many titles pop up. We now have 577,000 mental health professionals. We have in America 15 million people suffering from depression. Self-help books are now a $10 billion industry in America alone. We all want happiness and it's evading us. And really this word for happy, sometimes Christians don't like the word happy. We need to be about something deeper. Happiness is too, it's too fluffy. It's too superficial. I think that's changing. And even in the fields of psychology, wasn't that long ago, you couldn't even study the subject of happiness. You had to call it something more sophisticated sounding like subjective well-being. But when I use the word happy, I'm not talking about some fleeting feeling, not some temporary subjective state of life. But what Jesus is going to show us here, it's a satisfied and meaningful life, a flourishing life. And we're entering the Sermon on the Mount. As we journey through Matthew and rightly understood, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' answer to the greatest philosophical and psychological question of all history. How can we experience true happiness in this age and more importantly in the age to come? How do we get it? How do we obtain it? How do we sustain it? How can we experience true human flourishing? And in this sermon, Jesus is going to give us a vision for the good life. So in our passage this morning, which is really just an introduction to the sermon as a whole, Jesus is teaching us that the path to human flourishing comes from being kingdom-minded, following the way of the king in this age with a view to the age to come. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. He is also 
a teacher. He and he alone has the words of life. He's a brilliant philosopher. You know, liberal Christians will often dismiss Jesus. Well, he wasn't really unique. He wasn't really the son of God, but he's a good moral teacher. Well, of course, he is God incarnate. He is God made flesh. He is Lord of the world, but he's not less than a teacher. That's what the gospel of Matthew has shown us so far, right? Really, Matthew 1 to 4 has been showing us who is this man. We see he's the God-man, Emmanuel, chapter 1, verse 23. But now, chapter 5 to 7, what does he have to say? And if we get the first four chapters right, who he is, we had better listen up to what he has to say. So these three chapters, 5, 6, and 7, they really are the most popular chapters in all of the Bible. And therefore, in all of history, this sermon is the most commented upon, it's the most preached upon, it's the most memorized section of Scripture there is. There are so many books on the Sermon on the Mount, secondary literature, that there's actually tertiary literature that just categorizes and organizes all the secondary literature on the subject. I'm not joking. There are lots and lots and lots of books about this sermon. And there are various approaches to it. And so I don't want to geek out too much, but just to dismiss a couple real quickly, there are various approaches to the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to dismiss two quickly and I'll show you where we're headed. Number one is what's called the dispensational approach. Now, um, generally speaking, there are always exceptions, but generally speaking, This view of the Sermon on the Mount says that this sermon's actually not for us. It's not for the church. It's not for Christians. It's from a different dispensation and therefore doesn't apply to us. So the very first edition of the Schofield Bible, maybe some of you have that or probably many of your grandparents did, it says this about this sermon. The Sermon on the Mount in its primary application gives neither the privilege nor the duty of the church. And so they say it's not for us. Well, that's not right. J.C. Ryle's on better, he's a better God. He says this, every word of the Lord Jesus ought to be the most precious to professing Christians. It's the voice of the chief shepherd. It's the charge of the great bishop and head of the church. It's the master speaking. It's the word of him who spake as never man spake and by whom we shall all be judged at the last day. So that's not the right approach. Maybe you've been taught that way before. Uh, But there's another approach. I'll just categorize it as the Lutheran approach. Again, there's always exceptions. But generally speaking, they've said, well, this sermon's actually, it's law. It's not gospel. And so really the only point of this sermon is to show us that we can't keep it and make us fly to Christ. So we don't have to worry about keeping it because we can't. Well, that's true. We are not going to keep this sermon perfectly. We'll see that week after week after week for the next several months. But Jesus expects us to obey his teaching here. And those of us who've professed faith in Christ, we've been given the gift of the spirit and we can obey it. And we see that really from the way Jesus concludes. Intros and conclusions are always important. Flip over a page or two and notice how he concludes it there in chapter seven. Just look at verse 24. As he brings his teaching to a close, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So that's not the right approach either. We need to take this teaching seriously and we need to apply ourselves to it. It is to be obeyed. It is to be followed. Augustine again said this teaching is the perfect measure of the Christian life. This is not the suggestions on the mounts. 
The king says, follow me. That's what he just finished saying, right? Chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus told us to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now he's showing us in the next several chapters, what does it mean to repent? What does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to be a kingdom person? And he's going to show us, and it's not what we would expect. It's an upside down kingdom. It's an inversion. It's an alternative society. It's a contrast society. It's a, he's offering us a different way of life, a different philosophy of life, a discourse on discipleship. It's a Christian countercultural. This is what it looks like to embody the rule of God on earth. What sort of people are we to be when God's in charge, when God reigns? Well, this sermon lays it out. We're going to see the disciples have distinct profiles. This really is a foundation document for the new community of Jesus' followers. So let's look then at chapter 5, verse 1, the Holy Spirit through Matthew. Matthew 5, 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. Let me just point out here that there are crowds here. There's lots of people here. And Jesus stops healing. Do you remember last time we talked about it? There up in chapter 4, verse 23 to 25, he talked about all those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains. And Jesus stops healing in order to teach. We probably think that he wouldn't do that. We probably think he would take care of the crowds and do the miraculous and all of that. But he doesn't. In Mark 1, Jesus says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus came first and foremost with a message to proclaim. And so here he stops, leaves the crowds in terms of healing them, but now is going to teach them. And Matthew says he goes up on a mountain to teach. Now this, if we know our Bibles, it should remind us of something. Something in the Old Testament. This is allusion to Jesus as the new Moses with the new law for the new people of God. Matthew's done this a whole lot if you've been with us in chapters 1 to 4. Every major event in Matthew 1 to 5 has a counterpart in the story of Israel. Jesus is embodying Israel. That's why in chapter 1 verse 1, how does the book start? It says the book, literally the book of Genesis of the Christ. So it begins with the new Genesis, and then just as Israel parted the waters crossing the Jordan River, Jesus parts the waters in his baptism in the Jordan, a new exodus. Then we have Jesus tested in the wilderness after fasting for 40 days. Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years, and then Moses goes up on the mount to deliver his law, the Mount Sinai, and now we have Jesus going up on the mount to deliver his law. We've seen again and again the story of Israel finds its completion in the story of Jesus. Lots of overlap. Matthew wants us to see that Moses was a type that pointed forward to the new Moses, Jesus. Lots of overlap. Both Moses and Jesus, they had dreams connected to their births. Both were spared as infants. Both had flights from Egypt to Egypt. Both were involved with testing. The number 40, the Jordan River. Listen to the book of Exodus chapter 24. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment. So here in Matthew 5, we have the new Moses going up on a mountain. Lots of important things in the Bible have it on mountains, don't they? Just think of Ararat or Carmel or Gilead, Moriah, Zion. 
Jesus goes up on a mountain and he preaches the greatest sermon ever delivered. And he begins his sermon in 1 to 12 with what do kingdom people look like? What marks characterize the community of Jesus? And we have eight of them. Look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, first things first, we've got to get this word blessed right. As one New Testament scholar puts it, on this one word, blessed, the entire passage stands. And from this one word, the whole list hangs. Get this word right, the rest falls into place. Get it wrong, the whole thing falls apart. And again, the word blessed really just means happy in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. It's what the word means. In fact, early on, there was a group of manuscripts and early on, they, they had this title over this sermon. And you know what the title was of this sermon according to these early church fathers? Concerning happiness. Because that's what Jesus is offering here. It's the vision that he's giving us. Some, again, don't like the word happy. They think it's too flippant. It tends to think as of just make us think of just feeling happy rather than being in a happy situation. I understand that, but that's what the word means. So some people translate it fortunate. Fortunate are the poor in spirit. I don't like that though. It has connotations of luck. Some say congratulations, but that seems too colloquial. One scholar named Jonathan Pennington, who he's a teacher at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, translates the word flourishing. I like that. I think that's a little more robust. Flourishing are those who are poor in spirit. These are known as the Beatitudes, right? Maybe your translation has that subheading from the Latin word beatus, which means happy, blessed, fortunate, flourishing. It's a statement that a certain type of person, what Jesus is going to lay out for us, a certain way of being in the world produces happiness or blessing or flourishing. These beatitudes are descriptions and commendations of the good life. Again, here's what Pennington says about Jesus. As prophet and sage, as prophet and sage, Jesus is offering and inviting his hearers into a way of being in the world that will result in true and full flourishing now and in the age to come. Jews all over the Bible. It's Psalm 1, probably most famously, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the pathway of the wicked. When, what is the characteristic of this blessed man instead? He flourishes, right? He's like a tree planted by streams of water. Its leaf does not wither. He prospers in all that he does. It's the same word. Or Proverbs talks a lot about this being blessed. There's other words, many words for blessing. This is the main one I'm talking about here, though, in Proverbs 3. Blessed, happy, flourishing is the one who finds wisdom. Proverbs 8. Blessed, flourishing, happy are those who keep my ways, the Lord says. That's what Proverbs is teaching us, right? Proverbs is all about the good life. It's about the way of being in God's world that leads to flourishing. It really has a lot of overlap if you know your Greek philosophy with the whole idea of eudaimonia. The good life. So do you want the good life? Do you want to be happy? Jesus is inviting you in to his vision for it in this sermon. So what's the first mark then of kingdom people? What's the first beatitude? Blessed 
are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3. Poor in spirit. What does that mean? Well, it's not just materially poor, right? Because Matthew adds his two words here. It's not just poor, it's poor in spirit. It's poor on the inside. What Jesus is saying here is blessed are those who know that they're spiritually needy. Blessed are those who know their need for God. All you need is need in this kingdom. This kingdom's not for the self-sufficient. Blessed are those who know they can't save themselves. The old word is contrition. Blessed are those with a contrite spirit. Listen to the Lord in the book of Isaiah. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy places and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart's of the contrite. He dwells in the absolute highest of places. Where else does he dwell? In the absolute lowest of places. The contrite. Already we see how counterintuitive this vision is, isn't it? Who, who does America call blessed? The rich in spirit, the self-sufficient. Blessed are those who help themselves and have no need. Well, that was the view of the Pharisees. It was one of their main problems. That's the view of most of fallen humanity. Our natural inclination is to come, come to God with, with all that we have. Here's what I have to offer you, God. We come to him with our riches. Nope. We come to him bankrupt if he would have us. That was the problem with the church at Laodicea in the book of Revelation. Jesus says this, I say, you, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And the blessed are, are the poor in spirit, not the rich in spirit. Blessed are the ones whose song is nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Blessed are those who know their need. You know, I'm a big fan of Martin Luther. Not everything about Luther. He had a lot of problems. But the Lord did a lot through Martin Luther, and I love his reliance on the gospel. He was one of the most gospel-driven men that I've, that I've encountered and read about. And uh, he did a lot, and the Lord did a lot through him. In fact, you know, we, we take so much for granted today. Did you know that it was Martin Luther, actually, who brought congregational singing back into the church? Humanly speaking, we have him to thank for the fact that we get to sing together before it was just up front, usually in Latin. We have, humanly speaking, we have him to thank for the fact that we got Bibles in our laps in the common tongue. Again, it could just me, be me up here signing a bunch of Latin none of you know and you're just hoping that you get your check so you might make it to heaven to be with a God you don't even know of. So Luther did a lot. And so on his dying, on his dying, his deathbed, there are a lot of things he could have said. He could have said, you know, it's been a good run been a good run. God, God's done a lot through me. I've accomplished so much. Hashtag winning. You know what he said? Dying words. We are beggars. This is true. He had it right. Blessed are the poor in spirit. If you're not there, if you're like, man, I feel like I'm pretty good. Just keep coming. 
Just keep coming. Sermon on the Mount will get you there. And what do they, what do they receive? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This kingdom is for poor and penitent people. And so one question is just, do you know your need? It's really the first step. It's really the first prerequisite to coming to Christ is you've got to see your need. The only qualification is to first feel deep down that you don't qualify. If you see your need, the next step is to fly to Christ. Foul eye to the fountain fly. If you know you're a sinner and you need forgiveness, trust in Christ. Turn from sin. Put your faith in him. He has open arms. Second Mark, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now again, counterintuitive, right? People who mourn are blessed. People who mourn are happy. I mean, I know Jesus just came out of the wilderness, right? He was fasting for 40 days. Have you been in the desert too long? This is not common sense wisdom. This is future promises with the kingdom in view. This is the long view. Oh, how the church in America needs to regain the long view. The focus is future, but it begins now. And these, these first two beatitudes, these first two marks, they're connected. The poor in spirit mourn. Why? For they are sorrowful for sin. Listen to David confessing in Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Already we're going to see this again and again, but notice just the, this emphasis on the inner person, the disposition of the heart, poor in spirit, they mourn. And so again, I want to ask, do you mourn? Do you carry this mark of a kingdom person? Do you grieve over your sin? Remember the difference between Christians and non-Christians is not that some sin and others do not. We all sin. The difference is what's our posture towards it? Christians hate it and mourn over it and seek to put it to death. Non-Christians don't care. Do you mourn over your sin? Do you mourn over this sin-wrecked world? There's plenty to mourn over in this world. And Romans 8 says the whole creation mourns. It groans. And our happiness consists in the fact of the promise that we'll be comforted. I think Jesus is alluding to Isaiah 61 here. Listen to what 61, 1 to 4 says. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives in the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. This is Isaiah 61. In Luke's gospel, this is the very first passage that Jesus proclaims in the temple in Luke chapter 4. This is the servant of the Lord who's coming to bring comfort to those who mourn. The brokenhearted, 
the poor in spirit, they will have their fortune restored. They will be comforted. Third mark of kingdom peoples in verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek are those who, who have no power. They don't throw their weight around. The meek are the oppressed, those who are weak in the eyes of the world. The humble, maybe better, the humiliated. And the meek display this quiet and confident trust and submission to God. It's really tied to hum humility, which is the, the proper self-perception, self-assessment in light of who God is. And here Jesus is quoting Psalm 37, which is also a psalm of reversal, a reversal of fortunes. It says this, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Over the man who carries out evil devices, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil, for the evildoer shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The meek are blessed. And why are they blessed? For they shall inherit the earth. Remember that the end game here of the Christian life, the eternal state, is a new heavens and a new earth. And in Matthew chapter 19, 28, he'll call it the new world. In the new world. See, we tend to think, we've been so influenced by Gnosticism, we tend to think of eternity as just disembodied, floaty, baby, harpy, cloudy stuff. That's not the vision of the Bible. The vision of the Bible is new heavens and new earth, new creation, a renovated and renewed world. And so Jesus here, this Lord, this Savior, this master teacher, this philosopher king is showing us the way of being in his world that will result in true flourishing, keeping in mind the forward-looking hope of God coming back to make all things right. We will inherit the world's. The fourth mark is in verse 6. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Happy are the spiritually hungry, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Here, right off the bat, we learn a little bit about Bible study. You got to be careful with word studies. Be wary of word studies. Anyone brings up a word study, just, just, you know, just put up a little yellow flag and wait. Because meaning, in English and in Greek and Hebrew, meaning is not found at the word level. Meaning is found at the sentence level and the paragraph level. For example, what's the definition of key in English? There's probably seven different ones here. What about the word bear? Some of you are thinking of a hairy monster. Some of you are thinking about being patient, bearing with one another. Some of you are thinking about making direction, bear right. Meaning's not found at the word level, it's found at the sentence level. And so we gotta be careful because the Apostle Paul actually uses the word righteousness in a different way. For the Apostle Paul, he uses the same word, righteousness, as a gift we receive through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a right standing, it's a legal term. That's not how Matthew uses the word righteousness. Matthew uses the word righteousness in terms of how we live, our conduct. We know that because in chapter 6, 1, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness. So he's not talking about gift righteousness. He's talking about the way we live. So Jesus is saying here that happy are those who are eager to live in a godly way. They want 
to please God. They want, they yearn to live for him. They hunger and they thirst for righteousness. And notice carefully what he says here. Does he say, blessed are the righteous? Now that's true from a lot of verses in a lot of ways. That's just not what Jesus says in this verse. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is not righteousness possessed. This is righteousness desired. Friend, is that you? Does this fit you? Do you long to be like him? Do you yearn to know him? John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, said, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Just think of this image of hunger and thirst. You know, in America, by God's grace, we don't often feel really serious hunger pains, but we ought to have hunger pains for righteousness. We ought to thirst. We ought to thirst for righteousness like a toddler thirsts 10 minutes after bedtime. (laughs) Can I get a witness? The struggle is real. The door is revolving. We ought to hunger for righteousness like a 12-year-old boy hungers all the time. 10 minutes after dinner, can I have a snack? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. God loves to meet the needs of the spiritually hungry. What's the fifth mark of kingdom people? Verse seven. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Being merciful is coming to the aid of the needy. Such people will receive mercy. Now being merciful It's not a condition for God's mercy. It's a necessary consequence. Kingdom people are merciful people. So how do we we grow up into this? And listen, friends, we've all got got work to do. The process, I love the title of one book on sanctification. It's the infinite journey. It never ends. And so we all need to grow up into this. In fact, it takes a lifetime. Really, there's a lot of what Jesus is saying that overlaps with, with virtue ethics. And how long does it take to become virtuous? Well, your whole life. And so how do we grow up into this? You know, grandparents, grandparents know, right? They just know. You'll go to baby shower and there'll be all these, you know, all these infant things and grandparents, and by grandparents, I mean grandma. Grandma bought the 2T. And you're like, grandma, what? 2T, this is a baby. Grandma knows. Grandma knows that baby's going to have plenty of infant things, but that baby real quick is going to grow up into the 2T stuff. How are we to grow up into these? How are we to grow up in being merciful? Well, to grow in mercy, we must grow in our understanding of the mercy of God. And God's mercy is him withholding what we deserve. And so as we understand our sin increasingly and his mercy and the fact that his mercy is more, we then become more merciful people. Sixth mark of kingdom people is in verse 8. Blessed 
are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart, not just the externally pure, pure in the inner person, the heart, the inner person is going to be really important for the whole gospel, but especially this sermon. You see, Jesus doesn't merely want behavioral compliance to rules. King Jesus doesn't merely want external conformity. Who is the best at that? Well, the antagonist in all of gospels, the Pharisees. In fact, flip over to Matthew 23. Pharisees were some of the cleanest, the most pure externally. Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. Woe to you. Which, by the way, this is the opposite of, of blessed. The opposite of blessed is woe. So listen to his warnings here to these very squeaky clean religious people. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you, lie, you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus says, yeah, you look really good on the outside, but your heart is far from me. Jesus wants your heart. And heart in the Bible is the executive center of the self. This is actually really important to get. The heart is the central animating center of all we do. The heart is our motivational headquarters. It's not just a part of who we are. It's not just our emotions. It's the center of who we are. It directs and it drives us. As Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. The heart is human life in its totality. It's a comprehensive term for the personality as a whole. Lots of overlap with soul and mind and will. Bible just sums it up with the word heart. It's the seat of our mental faculties. And in scripture, it's way more than just how we feel. It's the causal core of who we are. It's the control center of the human person. That's what Jesus is after. Your causal core. In other words, all of you. The Lord told Samuel in 1 Samuel, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And Jesus said, blessed flourishing, happy are those who are pure in heart for they shall see God. Listen to Psalm 24, verse three, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. 
The pure in heart are blessed because they will see God. That's the grand goal of redemptive history. It's going to be really cool to be reunited with loved ones. That's not the main point. The main point is to be with the Lord. Seeing grandma will pale in comparison with life in the presence of God. Listen to how John puts it in his epistle. See what kind of love the Father's given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Blessed are the pure in heart. What's the seventh mark of kingdom people? It's in Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, it's really important to remember what the disciples thought this Messiah should come and do. They had a really wrong vision of what they thought the king should come and do. They thought the king should come and put them at their right and their left and violently overthrow the Roman Empire. Jesus' kingdom is different. Kingdom people are peacemakers. We are those who seek reconciliation. We are those who pursue peace. We pursue conflict resolution. We're going to hit this theme a whole lot in this sermon. It's really important to Jesus. And he says, peacemakers will be called sons of God. Ladies, don't feel excluded by that. In the ancient world, it was only the sons who received the inheritance. So in this sense, all people, male and female, are sons of God because we all receive the inheritance. What's the eighth mark of kingdom people? Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecution is it's just what it means to follow Jesus. Now, we've had a good run where that hadn't been the case. I think that run is coming to an end probably quicker than most of us like. So we need to be ready. It's just the norm. Peter said the same. Peter, Peter quoting Jesus here says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. In the next chapter, Peter says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Some of us need to grow up because it's coming. We need to buckle up. We need to be ready. When the first Christians were persecuted, and I think it starts verbal, then it goes financial, then it goes physical. And what did they do? Well, they didn't bellyache and they didn't moan and they didn't rant on social media. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. You'll be reviled. Probably here at this point in history because of what we believe about certain things, because of what Christians have believed for 2,000 years about judgment and sexuality and gender and exclusivity. But Jesus says this is the path to blessedness. These are the values of the kingdom, which is we're going to see weekly. They're reversal. They are not the conventional values of the society, which is why I'm calling this series a contrast society. America's beatitudes are blessed are the rich, blessed are the self-sufficient, for they have it all. 
And they have it their way and they have it now. Blessed are the chipper and the gleeful. Nevermore. Why? Because they're content. They're content with themselves. They're comfortable in this world. Blessed are the proud. Blessed are those who fight and win. Well, that's not the way of Jesus, but the way of Jesus is better. It's blessed. Happy are the holy. Jesus is teaching us that the path to human flourishing comes from being kingdom-minded, following the way of the king in this age with a view to the age to come. May God give us the grace to embody his rule and live under his reign faithfully. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this clear vision of the kingdom. Thank you that you haven't left us in the dark on how you want us to be. Thank you for this sermon preached and preserved for our good. And so we need help to believe it. This is not the way of the world. So much of this and so much of what will follow is countercultural. And so we ask that you would strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ to believe him that the true path to flourishing is his way, even when it's hard. Sometimes especially when it's hard. God, if there are those here who don't know you, I pray that you would show them their need. Show them their sin in light of you and your holiness, and may they flee to Christ. For those of us who do know you, would you, by your grace, help us? We need help. We want to faithfully embody your rule, and so we ask you to do it for our joy and for your glory. Amen.